And today I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been called, that you have drawn us even here this day to worship you. But in our life, ultimately, you have called us, you have chosen us since the foundations of the world. And we are here now, hearing your word, being reminded of the reality that those in Christ are heirs in Christ. And here we are taught that heirs are recipients of riches and wealth and provision and promise. Father, help us to hear of this reality check and that we would understand the provision and the purpose of this great reality as we encounter your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is the uh, next to the last sermon that we will have in chapter 9. And these are continual overlapping themes. They go and sometimes give us different perspectives and different caveats of how to understand the same reality. But even here we see that we are reminded of the things that we were told from the very beginning in Hebrews chapter 1. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, in the introduction to this particular letter to the Hebrews, that long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We see highlighted in this particular passage today the concept of a will. 
a will and covenant, an interesting merger of concepts because there's not very often in the scriptures where it talks about a will. It's a very Hellenistic idea. Not that inheritance is a Hellenistic idea, not in removed from Scripture. We know from throughout all of the Old Testament and into the New that there's a lot of talk about inheritance and uh, about being heirs. But here we have the writer to the Hebrews talking about a will. And we are probably fairly familiar with the concept of a will that um, Jennifer was asking the children this morning, even at breakfast, that if they knew what a will was. And that's something that is written out by someone that when they die, that it is how their particular earthly possessions or their particular will and hopes uh, will pass along of certain things that are within their stead and within their control, how those things will be handled. And so we see here the writer to the Hebrews is basically highlighting again the very topic that was introduced to us in the beginning of Hebrews, but he's telling us and understanding it in light of how we think and how they would have thought, and particularly in Hellenistic thought, as he's merging both this Jewish and Hellenistic thinking, and how something has to happen for there to be the provision of the benefits of a will. And it has to do with death. But there are some things here, and again, when we go over these particular topics, time and time again, the rote nature of hearing the same thing over and over again can have two different effects. It can have a very good effect on really getting it rooted into our mind so that we are um, able to grasp it and own it and hold on to it. And in this particular case, in the context for it to encourage us and strengthen us, or that repetition can eventually lull us to sleep after you hear it over and over again. And I encourage you to stay awake in this and to be one to hear and to understand because these are benefits like you would have when you were a beneficiary of a benefactor. Typically, whenever a will is read by the particular heirs and recipients of a will, I would bet you... Very few people have ever fallen asleep <laughs> during the reading of a will. I would probably venture to say, unless there was some kind of physical condition, or maybe due to the drama of losing the loved one, that they were up late often throughout the past evenings and before that meeting, I would say that it is even possible that no one has ever fallen asleep. No particular heir has ever fallen asleep during the reading of a will. And so in many respects, this particular passage for us today, which really is the reality of all of the scriptures, because this is the riches of what Jesus Christ has provided us, that he was appointed to be heir of everything. And then what we have here, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 6, that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we're already past that particular highlight by the time we get to chapter 9 that we know that when we're hearing this being read, that we are sitting in the room where the will is being read. Just as a reminder to you in chapter 6, if you want to flip back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things, which are him and his word, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We are told in that particular passage that the very purpose of sending Jesus Christ was to be convincing that he would be fulfilling his promise. It is the actual medium and provision and communication of all of the things that Jesus is promising is occurring in Jesus, and it is to convince us to give us strong encouragement that it would give us hope. These are all things that I am certain that every single one of you need. Every single one of you need encouragement. You need hope. You need strength. You need to be reminded of a reality because we are constantly being deceived against reality. We have Satan coming at us continually telling us lies. And here we have a proclamation of God's law, but his will and his provision for his people. And so we need to hear so that we may be convinced during any kind of difficulties and trials that we may face. The three things that I hope that you can take with you today in this particular passage, I think they're very subtle and I mean, very simple, somewhat subtle, but they're very simple for us to, to take with us, and they're very potent at the same time. The first thing that I want to remind you is that you are called. You are chosen. And that is a significant thing. You have been chosen since the beginning of time. Ephesians and the book of Revelation reminds us that he has written down in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, the names of those that he will draw to himself. The beneficiaries of what benefits come in Jesus Christ have been secured and have been promised. The book of Revelation tells us that our names will not be blotted out. That those who are holding on and trusting to Jesus Christ, their names cannot be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. And that only those who have their name in there will believe. And that those whose name are not in there, they will not only not be recipients of those benefits, they will be those who will actually worship the beast. They will actually worship the dying God of a dying age. Of death, But you are called and you are chosen. Now, we live in an age today where there's a lot of talk about deconstructing your faith. And I know a lot of times when we talk to people, if you're used to this, if you're interacting with people in the world, you can sometimes hear people talk about their faith or what they do in their particular religion as kind of like a, a choice There was a smorgasbord of ideas that are out there, and they sometimes you can even sense, and maybe we even talk this way ourselves, that, well, I choose to do this. I pick this, or we do this as if it was some kind of thing that we constructed. 
So you have people who think that they are constructing their understanding of the world. And then you have people who are deconstructing and then abandoning the reality of how God actually created the world. And both of those particular ways of talking or communicating or even thinking, there's all of this kind of self-control, or not control is not the word, but, well, control is the word, but not self-control. This being that one who is um, coming up with the ideology themselves or they're just adopting for what's best benefiting them. But when we look at the scriptures, the scriptures aren't laying out a smorgasbord of ideas. And you can kind of pick and choose and construct your religion. It's giving us a reality check of who God is and what being God is and the character of his nature and the fulfillment of his promises. And not only is it saying this is who God is, it's saying who we are. And our life is ultimately not a construction of faith or a deconstruction of faith, but it is hopefully a a waking up to the reality of the faith that is proclaimed in God's word. And when we are those who have come to recognize God's word, to recognize Jesus Christ, we must be reminded that it's not something like, oh, I'm so smart, I've come up with this idea, or I'm so glad that I have the ability to be so wise that I have picked this. No, you have been chosen by God. Abraham, when he was chosen by God, he wasn't you know, conjuring up this understanding for himself and that he was just constructing his faith. God came to him, called him, and his response of faith was a grace to him that God called and chose him. And that's a difficult thing. It's not a thing that's consistent not only in the world, but also in the church today. And there's a confusion about an understanding of how God is sovereign, and we also have a responsible free will. But the foundation of that understanding should be that you are chosen. And because you are chosen, it's not reliant on you. To save yourself. And that is a great and wonderful thing. You are called. And you have a special place. And that should be an encouragement to you. That God has empowered this particular path for you. Now we must respond. We must respond in faithfulness. Hence this the whole purpose of having all of these letters written in the New Testament. Is to encourage us to hold on. To strive to enter into that rest that particular reality of what Christ has done, that we are to hold tightly to that and to be consistent with that in our faith and our understanding in our service. But it is important for you to remember that as you see here in verse 15, that so that that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because you are called and you are chosen, you are going to be recipients Of what God has accomplished. Number two. We see that the whole point of this particular passage. Is talking about that promised eternal inheritance. And that means as you see in the word inheritance. You are an heir. You are a chosen heir. Of a particular inheritance. Don't you want to know what that inheritance is? Don't you want to be able to start cashing in on that inheritance? Now, the reality is that the, 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 the particular inheritance from Jesus Christ is both now and not yet. 
But we definitely want to start tapping into the now and to be living that out in the now. But we want to be looking forward and encouraged by what is the not yet. We were talking yesterday amongst the men. We were talking about perseverance. And Maharus mentioned how it was encouraging to him as he was striving through his studies that he was looking forward to that graduation. And recently, John Piper has been talking about how we are to be those who are looking forward to his appearing, to his coming, to his return. It is something that we should be looking forward to. We have a lot of things that are sometimes difficult for us to understand fully every little detail of what that return is going to be like. But he is going to return. We have a hope of an inheritance. And number three, this is going to be a mouthful. And this is just kind of showing you that I actually came up with this actually late, well, early this morning, this particular third point, because I was really struggling with the wording of this third point for the past couple of days. But to encourage you that you're not only called to be heirs, you are a peculiar people purchased by the power of propitiation for a particular purpose of a royal priesthood. Now, that's probably like five sermons in of itself there. I'm going to repeat that. I bet you can't write this down without me repeating it multiple times. You are a peculiar people purchased by the power of propitiation for a particular purpose of a royal priesthood. And the reason why all of those words were not to just be fun because there was a lot of peas there, but I really believe that this particular passage that is pointing out to us about being chosen heirs is to highlight for us that propitiation that's necessary, but as we see it in light of all of Scripture, it has a purpose that we get to be this royal priesthood. We've been talking about earlier in Hebrews about how Jesus is this priestly king, but we are told in the Scriptures that we are a royal priesthood. Because we are heirs of Jesus Christ. What does that mean that we get to be like Jesus as a royal priesthood? Well, there's a particular purpose in that calling. There's a purpose in that calling by the power of propitiation that we get to enter into fellowship with God the Father. That we get to be in fellowship with the triune God. It is through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that we are able to be able to dwell amongst them. But we also have this calling, this particular role of service ourselves in the proclamation of Jesus' royal priesthood. And so all that has purpose in what's being said here, when we see this very bloody description of what had had to happen so that we may be able to be recipients of this new and glorious new covenant. Let's just go through that passage a little more thoroughly now. It says, after a will is involved, the death of the one who made it, must, it must be established. Excuse me. Let me back up. I'm getting my words mixed up there. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will takes only effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So what we have here is a reminder that there was a will. And so we understand that he's he's appealing to our understanding of a will and that someone had to die. 
Something had to happen to the one who is promising the provision of what comes in the will. And so we have this highlighting that someone died. That someone died and now the recipients of the will can receive. But we also now have a changing right there in verse 18 to a language that is about covenant language. It says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. We see him talking about a will that someone had to die, and he's using will language. Now he's over here talking covenant language, and he's saying in this particular covenant, Blood had to be spilled. That the blood of calves and goats is highlighting that death and pointing to a future death that will bring about the fulfillment of that will, that will enact. So you're talking both the fulfillment of the promise that is done when the blood is being poured over the word of God, but also over the people of God, that these things have now come together and that death has occurred, blood has been spilt. But remember, this is in the context that Jesus, the one who both died and spilt the blood, we've been told who is active and alive, interceding for us. And so therefore we see that there is potency that that is powerful to enact not only that there's going to be a recipient or excuse me, a receiving of what the will promises, that there is actual power to make it in effect for us today. I know that's a lot to say there in that, but let's kind of go back and look at all these points again. So again, we are heirs. We are chosen heirs, sorry. We are chosen, but we are chosen heirs. James chapter two, verse five, it says, listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Now remember here that this is in the context for those who are seeking refuge in God, that we are being those who are to be convinced of that promise being fulfilled in Christ. But it is to understand that we are a people who were chosen who are poor. Now, that word poor can go in a lot of different directions. In the context that we see there in James, he's actually admonishing Christians not to be those who are particular to the wealthy and who are showing deference toward them versus the ones who are poor. But he's using this as an analogy also in the instruction, as it is a real instruction and an admonition, to remind people that the heirs of the kingdom are those who are poor. Those who are both poor in their ability and what they have to offer in themselves, but poor in spirit. And because of that, that when we look at the world and when we look at other peoples, that we should be reminded ourselves that we are recipients, we are heirs, not based upon any kind of internal capacity or wealth in of ourselves, but that God had chosen people who are poor and who are without, people who are hungry and who are lacking, 
to actually be the recipients of the riches of faith and the heirs and the, and the riches of the kingdom of God. So this should have an effect. It should have a purpose. It should cause us to be humble when we're in the presence of God. That's why we're here to worship God together today. But it also should cause us to have humility when we go and interact with other people. It also should have an effect of having humility for us when we're interacting with one another and people who are in our families. That we are fellow heirs. That we have nothing in of ourselves. That only the promises of this kingdom is only going to be to those who recognize their poverty. Who recognize their need of a savior. And so when we think about being chosen, we think about being heirs, we see here that it should have an impact on how we see others. We are reminded in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 that the Gentiles are our fellow heirs. And remember, now during the transition of the covenants here, that as we're going from Jews to Gentiles, that that's a challenging thing for a lot of Jews to understand. Even though it's been promised throughout the Old Covenant, it was a challenging thing for them to hear. It should be, probably is a challenging thing for us to hear that those who we would consider typically our enemies, that they who are those who seek refuge in Christ, that they are also heirs of that same faith. So it should create in us a humility to know that we are chosen. Turning over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We have here this reminder of that we are a chosen race, a chosen people, a particular people, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And what is the purposes of that there in 1 Peter chapter 2? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see this reiteration over and over again. You are chosen. You have been called. You are a particular people for a particular purpose. And you have this great and wonderful title of being a royal priesthood, but so that we may proclaim, just like the priests did when they went into the temple, went into the tabernacle, how they were, their particular service was a humble posture before the Lord, but also a proclamation to all the people who God is and what his promises are, the excellencies of who God is. But we must understand all of these things. We once once were not a people. We once were in darkness. We once were people who had no mercy. But we are now people who have received mercy. And we know that the scriptures teach us that if we are not those who are willing to grant mercy to others, we will not receive mercy ourselves. So we are chosen. We are called. We are heirs. And we have a particular purpose. But let's look at that power some more as we consider that third point in Titus chapter 3. If you would, this is a little bit longer passage, so turn over, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. In 
Titus chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 8. I want, to, I, want us to, I want us to chew on this because it's, it's, it's now giving us some application. It's giving us the ability to take this reality of this, what we are called to be and what we're chosen to be and giving us this identity of heirs and in making it applicable to how we are living in, in the here and the now. Verse 1, it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, when we see those kinds of instructions, I know that when I look at these things, and if I'm being really honest in that moment, which sometimes I'm not when I'm reading the scriptures, but if I'm being really honest in that moment, I think this is a very difficult Admonition for us. First of all, we don't like this word that it starts with to be submissive to all rulers and authorities. That we would typically think that when we have this position and identity of being chosen heirs, that that's going to give us some kind of strength in ourselves that we don't really need to be submissive to other people. But here, in the context of what we've been given here, is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And sometimes rulers and authorities are not godly. They're not gracious. They're not just. But we are called to use this particular, and I'm going to get to the heart of this in a minute, to use the particular calling that we have and the particular identity that we have to be empowered to do these things. Because who was it that was the best example of submitting to authorities and rulers? Was it not Jesus Christ who submitted himself to the cross so that the kingdom could actually be purchased and won and granted to us? To be ready for every good work. To have our tongues free from speaking evil to anyone. To avoid quarreling. And that's a difficult one. That's a difficult one for Reformed people particularly. We love a good quarrel. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Brothers and sisters, that calling to be gentle seems to be impossible for me. It is one of the most impossible things for me to know how it is to be faithfully gentle and often particular to my own family. But then here we are, back to this humility bit in verse 3. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The challenging thing with that particular verse is that for a lot of us, that past tenseness seems to be a little bit of an overstatement. That for most, many of us, we're still in very much of that particular state. Well, that's why we're being admonished here is to not be a part of that anymore. That we are not those in our identity to be those who are given to those particular things. Let's read through that again in verse 3. We're not to be foolish and disobedient. Led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. I would say that's one of the 
the biggest vices of our culture today, both for pagans and for Christians, to be those who are slaves to various passions and pleasures. And then the interesting thing is, is that when we have all of these accesses to passions and pleasures, we often pass our days full of malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. May it be that as we understand our particular calling and our particular identity of heirs, that we would be able to transition to verse 4, when it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. This blood that we see being represented in the tabernacle and the temple points to the blood of Jesus Christ that actually saves us from not just damnation, but from the present circumstance of being tied to our passions and pleasures. And he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now keep in mind now for this next part, keep in mind all of this blood being poured all over everything. It even says there in the Hebrews passage, it says nearly everything was covered in blood. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, that's a mouthful. If you think my, my uh, little third point there, this is, this is the Paul talking to Titus, and he's putting a lot in here, but there's a lot being said there. It says, let me read that again. He saved us, not by the works done in us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. And then look at who's, being, who's been involved in this. Of the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's power in this. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the work of Jesus Christ in that pouring out of his blood that gives us the propitiation of our sins and saves us, is empowered to us and activated in us by the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There is power, but it's not just an heir of something that is to occur later on, that it is active right now by the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon his people from the very death and resurrection of Jesus Christ there is potency that is actually transforming us people that we can, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we see that this particular potency of what happened on the cross, this blood that was poured out, that was represented at one time in the tabernacle and the temple, that was made a reality on the cross, that because of the resurrection and because of the Holy Spirit, that we not only have a hope to what is to come eternal, but that we are given this, that for those who believe, for those who repent and believe, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Well, what do the 
priests do? They do works. They do good works. What are we called to do as a royal priesthood? We are to proclaim his excellencies to those people who are poor and who are weak. We are to be those who are enjoying the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And we are to be those who are proclaiming that fellowship to a world who is lost. That they may also hear, those who are chosen and called by God, may also hear that they are also recipients of that inheritance. That is our calling. That is who we are, and there's power in that. And that should encourage us to know that as we strive to be that royal priesthood, there is not just the potential, but the promise that it will be effective and potent. It's interesting that when, we, when I do marriage counseling, uh, I would say that probably one of my favorite passages, and it's interesting how often people think about this particular passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, People often think, and particularly husbands, will they like to dwell on that particular um, part earlier on in chapter 3 of, of wives being submissive to their husbands. But as it gets to the instruction to the husbands in verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This encouragement and calling for us to understand our particular identity as heirs, and not just heirs of like, I get to receive the benefit, but joint and fellow heirs with those that God has called us to be with, that if we don't have that posture, if we don't have that posture of being a chosen people who are heirs of the recipients, fellow heirs, that it loses the potency and power when we actually try to live out that particular calling. And the scripture actually goes as far to say that if you don't have that kind of posture toward those who are next to you and toward those who you're ministering to, then that could be evidence that you're not an actual heir. If you're not willing to show that kind of mercy. Because in that particular situation, it's a leveling playing ground, but it's, it's not just a leveling playing ground against God's people. It's once it's an elevation and an exaltation that we are joint heirs with Christ. So whatever role we have here in this day and age, that we both get to benefit, all of us get to benefit, that because of what Christ has done, nothing that we have done, we are joint heirs. So if a husband is looking at his wife and he knows that he has a particular calling to be the head of his wife and to lead his wife, that he needs to understand that it is a temporal position of authority for an eternal relationship of being joint heirs eternally. And to treat another person, whether it be people who you're in covenant with on earth or people who you're ministering to that you're hoping will actually repent and believe, to treat them as below you is actual evidence that maybe you're not a recipient of that particular inheritance yourself. But because of what Christ has done, we are to be humble in that particular approach. And when we are humble in that particular approach, God says he will answer our prayers. 
So this encouragement to remind us that we're chosen, that we're heirs, and that there's power in this propitiation of his blood being poured out for his people need to be reminded to us not only for our own hope before the Lord, but our own hope in our interactivity with one another. As we're striving to be co-disciples with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our brothers and sisters, both in blood and in Christ, and to those whom we minister to, that there will be a potency of an effect. This is a promise from God. And it is a hope for us that the recipient of these particular inheritances will actually come into effect. And we can have hope in that. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you that there is power behind all these things.